Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor podcast slash videos on Mormonism, science, philosophy, religion, history, mathematics, whatever subjects interest me, which are many. <laughs> I am uh, <clears throat> I am having a wonderful week of research and study and learning, and I want to share some ideas with you that I have had. Hey, Burl Bikes from Boise. Welcome, my friend. Good to have you. I have been uh, exploring this exquisite subject of science versus religion, of atheism versus God, of science versus Mormonism. I've been focusing on the the serious weaknesses which I consider within Mormonism and especially with the leaders' responses to not only science, uh, but more specifically, their focus, of course, is going to be on evolution because that directly impacts their literal interpretations of the Bible, the book of Abraham, the book of Moses, etc. Some of Joseph Smith's teachings. Hey, Mark Crispin. Yeah, boy. Welcome, my friend. <clears throat> oh, quit. Okay, tell me more. <clears throat> I'm receiving accolades in the chat. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. But I want to uh, I want to turn the tables now because I am uh, and this depends on your point of view. Fortunately or unfortunately, I am one of those who really will and does and insists for myself to look at all sides of issues as I am permitted time-wise, intellect-wise, etc. And so, no, that's not Burl Bikes, but good try. <laughs> Uh, but I am one who does look on all sides of this issue. And I am adamant about giving credit where credit's due and exploring all areas. Now, when <clears throat> the evidence piles up and I begin to see that some of my knowledge was not correct and I shift my belief I enlarge my understanding and I grow in, uh, hopefully, what I consider to be knowledge, then there are some who will criticize me. And there are others who will absolutely welcome me. And as I proceed through my finitude of being a human, recognizing that I really don't have, quote, the truth, unquote, and I continue inexorably toward hopefully a broader understanding, a more correct, deeper, accurate view of all subjects that I love, then I yet again take to task things that I have adopted against some of my former understanding and beliefs and then I get those who were at once cheering me on to begin condemning me. <laughs> this is such a fascinating situation that I find myself in, in this, what do you call it, quest for truth. 
people have a tendency to, once they disparage, once they discover a former belief or a truth that is no longer such, then they begin to settle down and they become comfortable. And they begin to see, ah, well, I have arrived, and nothing can be further from the truth. But this is a psychological hang-up, and I think it's broadly throughout the human species. I truly do. Uh, we get no, no borough bikes. PYP is not going back to Mormonism. <laughs> That's a, a fun guess, but no, I can assure you, that's not happening. Uh, hey, Patricia, no, welcome. So in the process of trying to grasp what truth and reality is, I have, and I believe properly so, taken to task church leaders, Mormon church leaders in Salt Lake City. And I do mean the hierarchy, the first presidency, back in the early days of Mormonism, all the way up to today, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and their lousy mishandling of the science, as well as their lousy mishandling of the evidence which the science has brought forward. And I believe that there needs to be adjustments in the approach. And now I'm going to turn the coin over, and I am going to criticize the scientists and the new atheists for their lack of philosophical rigor and their misunderstanding of the evidences in order to gain points against, quote, religion right? So now the shoe is on the other foot. I like looking at all sides in the yin and yang movement of truth and understanding. It never sits still because we're finite. We always have to adjust. If we settle down into a Procrustean bed of truth, we end up being ignorant and end up being outdated. I do believe in many regards, on many subjects, I can legitimately point to Mormonism as my evidence on so much. But I also now have discovered and found from scientists, particle physicists, evolutionists, etc., that the scientists are in the same boat. So let's take a look at an argument and a discussion that is going on within science itself by the scientists. And of course, the religious folk are also pointing these issues out, but it's not because the religion is anti-science. This is so important, and it's hard to get people to see this. It takes effort. It takes repeating many, many times, etc. But it's not that they are being anti-science. They are being anti-scientistic. 
Now, what is scientistic meaning? It means science has all the answers to everything, which is just baloney. It never will get there. They're genuinely, from the scientists that I've been reading, there really are actual limitations. There are things science won't be able to tell us. So let's just stay as real as we can and see what happens when scientists begin to argue about some individuals within the scientific community who are really making asses of themselves because of their overweening um, desire to get one up on God and religion. And because of that bias, of that specific unscientific agenda, they really say some quite incorrect things. I'll put it that way. It's time to get real on all sides of this issue and recognize we're all making mistakes. We all have good points and we all have bad points. And that's pretty important to keep that balance. Science has gotten to the point to where they think they make no mistakes. And that's leading them into serious difficulty that is beginning to affect their funding on a world scale. And it is threatening science. This is why other scientists, and I mean real powerful scientists, are speaking up. And they're saying, time out. Whoa. Let's keep a lid on reality here. And that's what I want to talk about this morning and tonight. I don't think I'll be able to get through my entire selection. I am going to select scientists and religious folk who are hitting back with the concern for science because the public has a say-so. You and I, me and you, my audience, we are the public here, and we do have a say-so. And so the scientists are beginning to recognize that. Things are shifting. That's what I'm saying. So I've taken 10 minutes to kind of gently introduce this concept because there is so much potential for so much misunderstanding from absolutely all of us. I'm not claiming I have this right either, but I'm sharing with you other concerns from other scientists and religious folk that the issues have warped into something now that is hurting science and our knowledge. That is what I'm getting at. So let's take off. Uh, hey, welcome everybody. I see some new names. Good to see y'all. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the scientist is just speaking as a man, not a prophet. That is true. Now, one of the opening tasks that I want, this is interesting because, of course, the new atheism. 
uh, Vic Stanger, Richard Dawkins is, of course, the head dog, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, uh, others. It uh, seems like I've... Um, there are there was a spate of publications from 2006 to about 2015 where the new atheists held the baton and they tried to beat the shit out of anybody who disagreed with them religiously or scientifically or philosophically. They had their day in court. We have now entered a new day. This is what I want to begin to discuss Interestingly enough, is the reaction of other scientists who have every bit as much prestige, prowess, authority, and knowledge that Richard Dawkins, Vic Stanger, Sam Harris, and others have. So this is not a child trying to kick an adult in the shin. This is an adult slapping the snot out of the silliness of the arguments of other scientists who have a vendetta against God, just so you're aware of this. John C. Lennox, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? This book, I believe, is a relatively new one, 2009, I do believe, yeah, 2009, by Lennox. John Lennox is a PhD in philosophy and science. He is professor in mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's been there for over 30 years. I believe he is retired now. And he's a fellow in mathematics and the philosophy of science at Green Templeton College. So just so you understand, he has debated both Dawkins and Hitchens, and he's lectured in many universities around the world. He is particularly interested in the interface of science, philosophy, and theology, and he and his wife live near Oxford. This man is nobody's fool. He is exquisitely knowledgeable. Just because he's a Christian doesn't mean he's stupid and ignorant like Dawkins ignorantly professes and claims. John Lennox refutes this easily. So let me just give a brief paragraph here. This is on page 19 of the book God's Undertaker. So the world simply needs to be informed, according to the new atheists, uh, Atkins, Dawkins, etc. And they echo Nietzsche in this. The world is ignorant to the fact that God is dead. I mean, Nietzsche said so, and we still haven't got the message, according to the atheists, right? And science has buried God. So here's how Peter Atkins says it. Science and religion cannot be reconciled, and humanity should begin to appreciate the power of this child and to beat off all attempts at compromise. Religion has failed, and its failure should stand exposed. Science, with its currently successful pursuit of universal competence through the identification of the minimal, the supreme delight of the intellect, should be acknowledged king. I mean, wow, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, this is triumphalist language, however. Lennox has a good point here. But has the triumph really been secured? 
I mean, which religion has failed and at what level? Although science is certainly a delight, and Lennox is a very good mathematician and scientist, is it really the supreme delight of the intellect? Do music, art, literature, love, and truth have nothing to do with the intellect? I can hear the rising chorus of protest from the humanities. Well, what is more, the fact that there are scientists who appear to be at war with God is not quite the same thing as science itself being at war with God. Now, this distinction is not splitting hairs. I think Lennox makes a most remarkable point here. Some musicians are militant atheists, but does that mean music itself is at war with God? Hardly. The point here may be expressed as follows, and this is the point that I want to emphasize fundamentally, absolutely here. Statements by scientists are not necessarily statements of science. Now that's important. Nor, we might add, are such statements necessarily true. Although the prestige of science is such that they are often taken to be true. For example, the assertions by Atkins and Dawkins, with which we began, fall into that category. They are not statements of science, but they are rather expressions of personal beliefs. And that's the way it is. Of faith, even, fundamentally no different from, though noticeably less tolerant than, much expression of the kind of faith Dawkins expressly wishes to eradicate. Of course, the fact that Dawkins and Atkins cite pronouncements are statements of faith does not mean itself that those statements are false. But it does mean that they must not be treated as if they are authoritative science. What need to be investigated is the category into which they fit, and most important of all, whether or not they are true. So he is setting up the issue for his entire book. Now, I have not been able to completely get through this book. I just got it this week. But that's the setup where a mathematician scientist for over 30 years has simply said these men are mistaking statements of their own belief for an aspect that science is at war with God and religion, which is false. That's a category mistake. Atkins and Dawkins may be at war with that, which is perfectly fine. That's legitimate. But don't say the enterprise of science is doing that because that is a misstatement from Lennox's point of view. And I thought, well, now that's worth sharing. That, that, that's interesting idea here. Let's move on. Now, another new author, which I have discovered, whom has really fascinated me, is Wolfgang Smith. And in his Vertical Ascent, this is, this is the gentleman here. Now, Wolfgang Smith is yet another scientist, mathematician, physicist. He graduated from Cornell at age 18, where he majored in physics, mathematics, and philosophy. And he subsequently contributed a theoretical solution to the re-entry problem for space flight in his youth. 
<laughs> wow, that's impressive. After taking his doctorate in mathematics at Columbia, he served for 30 years as professor of mathematics at MIT, UCLA, and Oregon State University. And then Smith devoted himself to correcting the fallacies of scientific beliefs, focusing on foundational problems pertaining to quantum theory and visual perception by way of the traditional tripart cosmology. I'll discuss that in later videos. And so the Philos Sophia Initiative Foundation documentary on him, The End of Quantum Reality, is now available for your pursuit. So this man, Wolfgang Smith, is also an exquisitely powerful mind. The thing I really appreciate about him, appreciate about him, is his insight into quantum physics and mechanics, which I I am in the process somewhat of developing some, some talks that I can share with you. But this gentleman has given notice of another very new author in the area who is also a scientist, and she has rocked me with the issue she has brought forward, I want to introduce her through Wolfgang Smith simply because here is yet another very powerful, prominent mathematician scientist who is challenging the current scientific understanding, which is based more on dogma than on evidence. And this is really important to get out to us public. I appreciate the John Lennoxes, the Wolfgang Smiths, the Sabine Hassenfelders, and the Stephen C. Myers, who are bringing forward new information, new evidences, which are unfortunately being squelched by the reigning scientists in the reigning scientific paradigm. This is what is hurting science. They're doing it for their own egotistical gratification, and they make a boatload of money on it. But that's not science. So let's get on with this. On page 48, now, the standard model of physics. Now, Sean Carroll, uh, whom I did not. Sean Carroll, where is he? Anyway, his book's over there. The big picture. He discusses the standard model of physics. The reason it is the standard model of physics is because it has classified all of the particles and subatomic particles on the very small realm of our reality. And through the Large Hadron Collider, it is a machine that is built in a great big six-mile circle. It sends particles in two directions, almost at the speed of light, and they smash into each other. And those collisions expose, they break apart the atoms is what they're doing, and they expose the smaller constituent parts 
of the atom. The standard model has classified all of those hundreds of particles, gluons, dowons, fermions, mesons, quarks, up, down, strange, colored quarks. They've given them all these names. There are, They have now been able to show that out of all of those hundreds, the particle zoo, it became a nightmare for the theoretical and particle physicists. It's become almost an embarrassment of riches. It was supposed to be simplifying our understanding. The further we reduce reality down to that final single particle, then we can get what they call the gut, the grand unified theory of all of the cosmos in just one mathematical equation. That's been the goal. And in finding that smallest particle, they did not simplify things. They found hundreds of more particles. And it, it, it's mind-boggling to keep track of. Then they began to find antiparticles of the particles, which increase the amount some more. Well, now I think they've got it tamed down into families and groups of kinds of particles so that there's actually only 25. But notice, there still is 25, not just one. And it's crazy. It's blitzoid. This is the standard model. Wolfgang Smith demonstrates that Sabine Hassenfelder, whom I will get to, he gets this from Sabine Hassenfelder. And because I read this book and he introduced me to the thinking of Sabine Hassenfelder, I went and bought her book. Very impressive, very scary the direction science has taken today. It's not a pretty picture. Here's what she says about the standard model, despite its success, doesn't get much, get much love from physicists. Mikio Kaku calls it ugly and contrived. Stephen Hawking says it's ugly and ad hoc. Matt Strassler disparages it as ugly and baroque. Brian Green complains that the standard model is too flexible. And Paul Davies thinks it has the air of unfinished business because the tentative way in which it bundles together the electroweak and strong forces is an ugly feature. I have yet to find someone who actually likes the standard model. That's fascinating. A key condition which imposed itself from the start, this is what Wolfgang Smith is saying now, termed supersymmetry. Now, supersymmetry became the all-saving god of particle physics. This concept was going to save the standard model. 
It entailed the fascinating prospect that every particle of the standard model had a supersymmetry partner. The observable parameters of which string theorists could in principle calculate. Now, string theory is yet another theory proposed that everything is made of tiny little one-dimensional strings, not particles. We'll get to that. This enlargement, moreover, if it were to prove real, would round out the picture of the standard model as described by the standard model and hopefully remedy the proverbial ugliness of the model. The very beauty of supersymmetry seemed almost to guarantee getting rid of this ugliness. So the expectation was rife, moreover, that at sufficiently high energies, nuclear collisions would produce those supersymmetry particles. And over the course of the last 15 years, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, failed to find supersymmetry. They've been spending years and years and years and billions of dollars, and they haven't found what they were looking for. Their theory did not give us the results they wanted. So, meanwhile, something far more potentious, even than the apparent demise of supersymmetry, has come to pass. In reaction, most string theorists discarded the idea that their theory would uniquely determine the laws of nature, and instead, they embraced the multiverse, in which all the possible laws of nature are realized somewhere. They are now trying to construct a probability distribution for the multiverse according to which our universe would at least be likely. So she comments now that physicists are about to discard the scientific method. And no wonder for by the time one proposes a multiverse, the line has already been crossed. This isn't science. Well, what is it? Let's take a look. Let's be clear on this pivotal issue. It is absolutely impossible to accommodate multiverse theory to the scientific method. So we have to ask why. Well, there is no empirical way to communicate between the infinite number of universes that potentially could be there. And so there's no way to find any of the properties or even that they exist. We can't even test the proposition. This is Wolfgang Smith on page 49 of his text, the vertical ascent. Smith also says there's no way we can either confirm or falsify the multiverse theory by empirical means. The hypothesis of a multiverse is in principle bereft of scientific sanction. 
What happens is the multiverse reduces to a kind of Dusesh Machina, missioned to rescue a scientific theory which fails to square with the facts. So the multiverse itself is an ad hoc excuse, as Richard Carrier says, when people propose explanations when the evidence doesn't fit, he calls that ad hoc excuse. Now we see the scientists themselves that their experiments have not given them the information they wanted. They propose all kinds of wild, hairy, untestable guesses. String theory here, a multiverse theory there, inflation here and there, etc. Eternal inflation where billions and billions and billions and billions and billions, as Carl Sagan would have said, of universes are created. And yet we have no way to get in contact with them. In other words, as Sabine Hassenfelder, a particle physicist, says, this is just ridiculous. Science is being relegated to the arena of guesswork with no evidence at all. And yet, those who speak out and say so are the ones being called unscientific, anti-science, just religious nut jobs, etc. The scientists are even going so far as to ridiculously boycott publishers who publish opposite views or other views than the scientists' views in hopes to finding some kind of an answer. They say, no, our theory alone is the only one we should be allowed to test and look into and fund. No one else has any right. In other words, money and politics is beginning to destroy our science. And we had damn well better wake up to that and start doing something about it. That is why Wolfgang Smith is so important to read. That is why John C. Lennox is so important to read. That is why Sabine Hassenfelder is so cotton-picking important to read. For instance, on this subject of inflation, which saved the day for the early expansion of the universe, but it brought on its own set of problems, which now I don't think it's accepted. In other words, they're guessing now, and they're guessing using theories that cannot possibly be tested. But they say, well, the mathematics of these theories, though, are quite beautiful. And that's become the criteria. Well, I think it's beautiful. Therefore, it's probably more likely true than not. That's where the science has devolved to. And then they turn around and say, well, anybody who doesn't accept our views is just stupid, ignorant, lazy, etc. I mean, the scientists are starting to act like the Mormon church leaders up here in Salt Lake City, aren't they? That's terrifying. If that doesn't scare the shit out of you, you have not been listening. You don't understand the issue here. That's what I'm trying to bring forward to. 
So let's talk about inflation for just a minute. Again, Wolfgang Smith talks about inflation, has some evidence speaking for it, though not overwhelming, according to Hassenfelder, whom I will get to. Physicists have further extrapolated this extrapolation to what is known as eternal inflation. So inflation wasn't good enough. So now they bring in another extrapolation of eternal inflation to try to solve some of the other problems. And notice they're not basing any of their hypothesis on any actual evidence whatsoever. We are talking billions of years ago at the beginning of the universe, this inflation concept. And we are talking hundreds of millions of light years away. So the criteria has become the beauty of the mathematical equation is what now determines the truth. How do you define beauty? I like the equation. And therefore, this is a valid scientific hypothesis. That's terrifying. That's absolutely horrifying. But that's what we've gotten to. And more and more scientists are beginning to speak out against that. So let's see what this inflation. Despite these uncertainties with even eternal inflation. Now, eternal inflation is that the universe itself, our universe, is spinning off through inflationary means more and more universes out of this one, but we can't contact them. But there's billions of them, and therefore, every possible situation can happen now in the multiverse. This is the ad hoc excuse. This is the ad hoc guess that the scientists are desperately making because they don't like the idea of a fine-tuned universe. And not only fine-tuned throughout time, but at the very beginning of the universe, it was extremely fine-tuned. Otherwise, galaxies wouldn't have originated and life wouldn't have occurred. Chemistry would not have gotten off the ground. The fine-tuning of carbon, as the astronomer-astrophysicist Fred Hoyle found out. He was an agnostic atheist. Stephen C. Meyer, in his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, talks about Fred Hoyle. And he really was an agnostic atheist until he discovered the astonishingly unreal fine-tuning there had to be for the carbon atom to exist, and without carbon, life doesn't arise. Stuff like this terrified the scientists who wanted all to be natural, and so rather than accept the fine-tuning, they propose, with absolutely no evidence, the most ridiculous Occam's razor-stopping proposal of infinite number of universes. <laughs> That's astonishing, isn't it? So, inflationary cosmology, as we currently understand it, cannot be evaluated using the scientific method. And so, Sabine Hoffenstetter 
is not sure anymore from what we do here is the foundation of physics is this science doesn't appear to be anymore and that's scaring everybody so the need of a theory to be backed up by evidence is what Hoffenstetter is calling for. In her interview with a an astronomer, a very famous astronomer. Now, now he's going on on page five, on page fifty-one. In this, I think I will now turn instead of reading Wolfgang Smith, I'm going to get to Sabine Hoffenstetter's book, Lost in Math. How beauty is leading physics astray. This book is so well-written. She is so funny. She is an incredible author. That's her. She is so hilarious. She is a particle physicist. She's a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies. She has a very popular blog. She's written lots of scientific articles. Uh, I think her blog is called Gobbledygook. You really must watch some of her YouTube videos. She is spectacular. But she is the real deal. Her concern is that we're losing science. And the reason why is terrifying. She interviewed with George Ellis. Now, George, and this is on page 213. Uh, and the following pages. He is Professor Emeritus at the University of Cape Town. He is one of the leading figures in the field of cosmology. In the mid-1970s, Stephen Hawking and George Ellis wrote the book, The Large-Scale Structure of Space-Time, which is still the standard reference 50 years right now for 50 years. So this man is at the top of impressive with Stephen Hawking. Already in 1975, he studied the question of what can be tested in cosmology long before the multiverse brought the issue to everyone's attention. But George's interests are not restricted to cosmology, he has also explored emergence in complex forms and systems, not only in physics, but chemistry and biology. And he isn't afraid of philosophy. He likes to look at the big picture. But recently, he doesn't like what he sees. What is it that he sees? So Hassenfelder asks, what are you worried about? And he says, this is George Ellis. This, this is a man of the stature of Stephen Hawking talking right now. Here is his concern. And we need to take care to understand how serious this is if we all, as the public, hope that science continues to flourish because of the antics of the few, all the rest of us are going to suffer in our scientific knowledge. And we need to become a voice for saying, stop the bullshit and get back to real science. 
this is really critical. We would do it economically if our jobs were threatened. Let's do it scientifically because our knowledge is threatened. This is critical. Pretty, I know I'm being somewhat tense and people don't like that. It's all good. Doesn't matter. This is what George Ellis says. There are, and this is on page 213, 14, and 15. There are physicists now saying that we don't have to test their ideas anymore because they are such good ideas. Holy shit. Did you catch that? Wow. And they say religion has blind faith? Holy nightmare. Our ideas are so good, we don't even have to test them. You just need to accept them. These are physicists, you guys. George says he leans forward at the table and he's staring at her now, at Sabine Hassenfelder. And he says, they're saying explicitly and implicitly that they want to weaken the requirements that theories have to be tested. He pauses and leans back as if to make sure I understand the gravity of the situation. To my mind, that's a step backwards by a thousand years. And Wolfgang Smith, in his vertical ascent, says, Very well said, George Ellis. A man with the stature of a Stephen Hawking is speaking. And we had better pay attention if we care. That's the point. It's undermining the nature of science. I don't like this for reasons, some of which are the same as yours and others that are quite different. I think, what I think is that science is having a difficult time in the world right now with all the talk about vaccination, climate change. Yeah, this just happened a couple years ago, this interview. This is just like 2020. This brand new stuff. Because of the vaccination, the climate change, the GMO crops, nuclear energy, and all of that demonstrating skepticism about science. Theoretical physics is supposed to be the bedrock, the hardest rock of the sciences, showing how it can be completely trusted. And if we start loosening the requirements over here, I think the implications are very serious for the others. But then there are some very different reasons why I'm interested in this, reasons that I think you're probably not sympathetic to. That is, what are the limits of science in relation to human life? What can science do and what can it not do? What can it say about human values, about worth and purpose? I think that's very important. I think that's very important for the relation of science to the wider community. And Hassenfelder writes, how can I possibly not be sympathetic to this? So I let him go on. George Ellis says, a lot of the reasons 
that people are rejecting science is that scientists like Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss and others say that science proves God doesn't exist, and so on, which science cannot prove, and they know it can't prove that. But it results in a hostility against science, particularly in the United States. Now, if you're in the Middle West, USA, and your whole life and your community is built around the church, and a scientist comes along and says, get rid of this, then they better have a very solidly based argument for what they say, but they don't. But David Hume already said 250 years ago that science cannot either prove or disprove the existence of God. Now, Hume was a very careful philosopher, and nothing has changed since then in this regard. These scientists are sloppy philosophers. But this is probably what you're not interested in. That scientists are sloppy philosophers isn't news to me. After all, I am one myself. But I say I didn't quite get what this has got to do with theory assessment. Now, here's the catch. Not only are our scientists utterly sloppy philosophers, they are endangering science by blabbing away with their own idiotic anti-religious biases. And here's the effect. This is why we as the public need to begin to speak up and tell the Dawkinses and the Krauses, Hawking's dead now, so is uh, Hitchens. But some of the living ones, we need to tell them, grow up or shut the hell up, because now you're the enemy of science. Even though you love to imagine you're the hero, you're turning off too many people. And it's costing science and the credibility of science. Therefore, you are no longer the solution. You have become the problem. We public need to start voicing those concerns because science is on the line. So, George explains, it's theory assessment now in the sense that some scientists, some scientists are making extended claims of what science is about, about what it can prove and disprove, and Ellis uses Lawrence Krauss as his example. He comes along and says, science disproves some aspect of religion. Is this a scientific statement, or is it a philosophical statement. That's exactly the point that John C. Lennox raised in God's Undertaker. These guys are not making science statements. They're personal philosophy statements. And they're, it's perfectly fine, but you damn well better be able to philosophically show some prowess, not some stupid kindergarten antics arguments like all of the new atheists have been doing. And it's harming the very thing they love to imagine 
that they love and support, it's no longer doing that. We're in a new day now, right? So here's what is concerning George Ellis. And if this is a scientific statement, what's the proof? If you're going to use science, you have to use the proof. They're claiming it's a scientific statement. So this is an area in which I think we're having differences. Vic Stanger wrote a book a while ago saying that science disproves the existence of God. That was his book, uh, uh, God, the Failed Hypothesis. One of the books that helped convince me that Mormonism couldn't be true. And that was one of the solidifying books to actually fall into the mire of atheism. And now I've been crawling back out because I am beginning to recognize in my short understanding and lack of ability to discern truth from error philosophically, the new atheists, their arguments don't cut the mustard. Now that I'm seeing philosophers and other scientists discuss the shortfalls of the new atheism, I'm very impressed. Powerful scientists who author materials that become standard reference materials with other powerful scientists, such as Stephen Hawking. We're not talking Mickey Mouse high school teachers here, folks. We're talking mathematicians, scientists, particle physicists who have been at it for decades. They are every bit of a match of the scientific prowess, knowledge, and capability of any Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, or Sam Harris anywhere in the world. Vic Stanger wrote a book. George says, I was asked to review Vic Stanger's book. So I wrote, I opened this book with great anticipation. I was waiting to see what was the experiential. Where's the experiment, the apparatus that gave the result? And what did the data points look like? And was it a three sigma or a five sigma result? And then he gives a short laugh. Of course. There is no such experiment in Vic Stanger's book. These are scientists who haven't understood basic philosophy, like the works of David Hume and Immanuel Kant. It's to do with theory assessment, George explains, because science has nothing to say about philosophical issues but they are claiming that it does. Science produces facts that are relevant for philosophical issue, but there's a boundary between science and philosophy which must be respected, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. So have I for other reasons. Minding the boundary between science and philosophy, I think, could help physicists separate fact from belief. And I don't see a big difference between believing nature is beautiful and believing God is kind. To come back to physics, I say, you were worried about where physics is going? Here's where I began becoming alarmed as I was reading this fantastic book of Sabine Hossenfelder's Lost in Math. I strongly, I read it yesterday. 
I could not put the book down. I read it in one day. Fantastic book. Scary book. Really scary. I'm scared for my children and my grandchildren. If you don't give a damn about your own self, that's one thing. But what about everyone else underneath us? Right? We fight the fight not for our own egos and comfort, but for the future of our loved ones. If that's not worth fighting for, then you have no good goals in your life. That's what I would propose. I would propose you wake up and start reassessing where your priorities are, personally. But now I'm getting preachy, so let me take it back to George Ellis. So, um, yes, you must have looked at the book of multiverses by... In, in search of a name, the string theorist from Columbia. Oh yeah, Brian Green. Yeah, Brian Green, who is one of the most popular popularizers. He has many YouTube videos. He's got a science channel. Uh, he's written several books, etc. But listen to what the top physicist George Ellis has to say about Brian Green's materials. He has these nine multiverses. Nine. Nine. One isn't enough. Now you got to get nine. And he is using a slippery slope argument. So on this side, you have Martin Rees, another fabulous astronomer, by the way, saying that the universe doesn't just end beyond our visual horizon. So in that sense, it's a multiverse. Of course, I agree. And a little further, you have Andre Lin's chaotic inflation with infinitely many bubble universes. And then still further over there, you have the string theory landscape in which the physics in each of the bubbles is different. And even further, you get to Max Tegmark's mathematical multiverse where nothing but mathematics is what exists. And then farther over there still, you get people like Nick Bostrom saying that we live in a computer simulation. That's not even pseudoscience. It's fiction. So Sabine says, well, it's a modern version of the clockwork universe, basically. Then it was gears and bolts. Now it's quantum computers. Yes, George says. But you see, Brian Greene lists it as a possibility in his book. So far removed from real science of probability. Our scientists misguided themselves in the philosophical understanding are ending up going to possibility, and this will destroy science. And we, as the public, have a right. We have a necessity to say we don't accept your speculations as science. Do the science 
And then you can play around with all of your fiction all you want. But don't you frickin' dare call your idiotic guesswork science. You call it by what it is. That's important for the public to begin to do, and really fast and really loud. Or our children and grandchildren are in for real trouble. I'm just saying, it's time to wake up to the full context here. This is amazing. We have one of the very top scientists saying this. So you see, when people write things like this as scientific possibilities, I wonder to what level can you have faith in what you're thinking? It's just ridiculous. We have a top scientist saying all of the popularizers, the Leonard Mollendow, I can't even pronounce his last name, I'm sorry. I don't mean any disrespect there. The Stephen Hawkings, the Brian Greens, the Leonard Suskins, the Lawrence Krauses, the Neil deGrasse Tysons, Bill Nye, the science guy on TV. All of the popularizers are beginning to harm the real science. And we need to do something about that. We need to become a voice and say, that's enough. Bullshit of science. You label it for what you're doing. Let's get back to real science. If you're going to claim to be scientists, if you're popularizers, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not arguing, quit speculating, quit trying to learn, quit. I'm not saying quit presenting other hypotheses. I'm saying, don't tell me your ideas are so good they don't need to be tested. That's bullshit. Every idea that you're presenting as science has to be tested. There has to be observables that we can just justify our conclusions or you are not doing science. Right? That's what we need to start saying. That's what George Ellis is concerned about. What else, what else is it that you can't trust in what they say? There's the crux. There's the crux. Here's what's making George Ellis so concerned. I don't think we have remotely any differences, as George believes, according to Hassenfeder. This matters to me because there's a lot of trust involved in science, George continues. Say the Large Hadron Collider, I have trust in the people who do the experiments and the Planck corroboration. I have trust in them. Trust matters a lot in science. And if there are people going about saying, it's really possible that we live in a simulation, then I can't trust them as scientists or even as philosophers. If they're presenting their fiction as truth and reality, we need to let them know that that's wrong. During experiments, the Large Hadron Collider creates about a B 
billion proton-proton collisions every second. That's too much data to store, even for CERN's computing capacity, so the events are filtered in real time and discarded unless an algorithm marks them as interesting. From a billion events, this trigger mechanism keeps only 100 to 200 selected ones. We trust the experimentalists to do the right thing. We have to trust them. Because not every scientist can scrutinize every detail of everybody else's work. It's not possible. We'd never get anything done. Without mutual trust, science cannot work. That CERN has spent the last 10 years deleting data that hold the key to new fundamental physics is what I would call the nightmare scenario. I'm not against the multiverse, George says. I'm just against saying that it's established science. And this is what the popularizers are telling us, the public. There is a gross misperception happening. I, the backyard professor, I am not anti-science. Only a third of my library is science books. I am not anti-science. I am pro-truth. And if we have to correct the scientific popularizers and say, no, I'm not going to accept your brainwashing because you have an anti-God agenda and therefore you are misstating science in order to refute God, then knock off the stupid bullshit arguments. I don't buy it. And neither should you. That's what it's come down to. Because now it's harming science, which will harm us all across the world. Therefore, it is our problem. Correct? So, if people say that it is established science, they want to loosen the requirement of testability? No. Not allowed. That's what gave science its power. Why take that away? To humor a few anti-God popularizers who want to say science answers all the questions when we all know that that stance is simply ridiculous. Why follow it along? Because they're popular. Or, hey, I've made $10 million refuting God. Who gives a fly and flip? That ain't science. Science is not about how many people believe what I'm saying, for Pete's sake. Have they lost their thread so horribly? Yes, they have. And then they turn around and they start attacking everyone else ad hominem for not agreeing with their own view. They're getting as bad as the Mormon church leaders. And I got news for you. That is not a compliment. This is serious. So, okay. They've been following a good line of reasoning 
leading to the multiverse proposal, but they have so many steps now to get there from well-established physics. Each step seems like a good idea. And this is how Vic Stanger described the uh, view of the multiverse in his book, The Multiverse, because there is a good idea in each step, but they are all unchecked extrapolations from known physics. And there's the problem with the multiverse. This is coming from one of the world's top physicists, George Ellis. It used to be that you could make a hypothesis and you check that step. Then you make a further hypothesis and you check that step and so on. Without that reality check, we might go down the wrong path. But that's because experimental checks are so difficult, I say. And then what do we do to proceed? I think we have to go back and start with some basic principles, George says. One thing is that we need to rethink the foundations of quantum mechanics. Because under all of this is the measurement problem of quantum mechanics. When does a measurement really take place? It's when, say, a photon is emitted or absorbed. And how do you describe this? You use quantum field theory. But if you pick up any book on quantum field theory, you find nothing about the measurement problem. They just calculate probabilities, but they never discuss how the probabilities turn into measurement outcomes. Yes, so we need to go back and rethink the measurement problem. And this is where my hero and friend Wolfgang Smith comes into the picture, because that is exactly the issue Wolfgang Smith has been working on for the last 50 years. And by God, I think he has a powerful point about quantum physics, which I do want to present in some videos as I prepare them. So there's hope on the horizon. Hoffenstetter's book, Lost in Mathematics, is a 2020 book. Brand new. Brand new information. So here's the issue. And then he says the other issue that we have to do is not work with infinities. And he says that's very important. And, and I'm not going to get into that. So I think it should be a philosophical foundation principle that nothing physically real is infinite. There's no way I can prove it. It may or may not be true, but we should be we should use it as a principle. This is on page 218 of Hoffenfelder's book, Lost in Math. I say to him, what confuses me is that in other areas, physicists do use the absence of infinity as a principle. Do use it? Yes. When you have an infinity appearing in a function, we assume it's not physical, I explain. But there's no good mathematical reason why a theory should not have infinities. 
Now, this is interesting. It's a philosophical requirement turned into a mathematical assumption. People talk about it, but never write it down. That's why I say it gets lost in math. We use a lot of assumptions that are based on philosophy, but we don't pay attention to them. Correct, George says. The problem is that physicists have been put off philosophy by a certain branch of philosophers who spout nonsense. For instance, the famous, the famous so-called affair and all of that. And there are philosophers who, from a scientific viewpoint, do talk nonsense. But nevertheless, when you are doing physics, when you are doing physics, you are always using philosophy as a background. And there are a lot of good philosophers. Jeremy Butterfield, Tim Modlin, David Albert. These are good philosophers who understand the intersection between philosophy and science. And I'm going to add Stephen C. Meyer into the mix. I've discovered another new voice I want to start presenting to you all. They're very sensible in terms of the relationship between science and philosophy, and one should form a good working relationship with them because they can help one see what are foundations and what is the best way to frame questions. So I'm going to put this up on the screen. You can pause the video and start Googling these guys. We, as the public, need to get involved because the threat is real against all of us. And it's not their intentions to do this evil. It is because the scientists, the atheists, and the popularizers have lost the vision of what's important for the world. They're on a personal vendetta to get God. And it's just childish bullshit that they've ended up arguing. Therefore, they've become the problem. Here are the names of these philosophers. I've got it underlined. Pause the video and start looking those people up. Start studying what they have to say. Yes, Richard Dawkins is fun to read. He makes you laugh and all that. His philosophy sucks. His philosophical arguments are idiotic. So are uh, so many other new atheists. Uh, Stephen Hawking's philosophy sucks. I've gone on long enough this morning. I'm just saying tonight I'm going to do a tighter focus on how and why the philosophy and arguments of Lawrence Krauss the Universe from Nothing, and Stephen Hawking's book, The Grand Design. I'm going to show why philosophically that's a ridiculously weak stance. But are they attempting to improve their philosophical outlook so that they can begin presenting better arguments? No. 
They are boycotting publishers. They are calling everyone else names who doesn't think like them, which is so unphilosophically, insipidly silly that it's an embarrassment they're acting this way. Though they have become the problem, they can solve it if they park their over-vain egos to the side and get back to real science. Quit worrying about other people being religious. It's none of your fucking business. Quit making such a big whoop-de-doo and then turning around and stupidly saying you're being scientific. You are not. The new atheists are not being scientific in their anti-religious diatribe silliness. Let's get back to that if that's what you want to be at. The suggestion by George Ellis is excellent. It's time to improve our own philosophical outlook. I can't disagree with that. True story. So I have another fantastic book, Existential Physics by Sabine Hassenfelder. This is a scientific guide to life's big questions. I have some comments from her I'll share with you tonight. I also have Stephen C. Meyer, Return of the God Hypothesis, brand new book, 2020, I believe. He is with the Intelligent Design Movement. He, he runs the Discovery Institute. I'm well aware of the diatribes that evolutionists mischaricature intelligent design with. It's time to let the intelligent design guys describe their science. And I choose my word deliberately because I'm very impressed with Stephen Meyer at this point. I've got all four of his books. I just received them this week. I have watched over 30 YouTube videos of him being interviewed and debating. I'm very impressed with him. I may not agree with intelligent design, but he's definitely got something interesting to say which helps me appreciate science more, which is why I love him and his ideas. Richard Dawkins doesn't help me appreciate science. Lawrence Krauss doesn't help me appreciate science when he ad hominems everybody. And then finally, John Lennox, God and Stephen Hawking, whose design is it anyway? He discusses Stephen Hawking's book, The Grand Design. I'm going to share Lennox's mathematical, the mathematician, I should say, his analysis of the positively wrong philosophy and the philosophical stance and Stephen Hawking's confusion of causes, which Stephen C. Meyer also shows is the problem with Lawrence Krauss. And I'll, I'll get more into that tonight. Uh, we've been about an hour and a half. I'm going to head out for now. I've got some other things I need to get done today, and then I will return tonight at 6 p.m. to share more with you of my concern of why I think we all have a vested interest in standing up for science instead of being swayed and wooed by cute little verbal antics of atheists with religious agendas. I have now changed my mind yet again. I'm seeing a larger picture. The atheists have had their say. Now let's see what the 
religious scientists who are every bit as well-known, understanding, and knowledgeable as any of the scientific atheists are. Let's see what they have to say. That's what I'm doing. I explore all sides. And I do believe, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I believe in giving credit where credit is due when the evidence justifies. So thanks, you guys. Be good, do a have fun, have a great day. I will see you again back here tonight, six o'clock, and I will continue this analysis of the other side of the coin. We've looked at the religious leaders in Mormonism and found their failings. Now we're looking at the Orthodox science establishment scientists and finding their failings. And we as a public have a right to expect more from our public leaders, whether religious or scientific. And that's what I'm all about. So thanks, you guys. I'll see you tonight. <laughs>